welcome to Managing Cutoff. I am Anthony Colangelo, and I want to talk today about a couple of stories affecting the ISS partnership um, and geopolitics at large for NASA. We'll start off with the news that Dmitry Rogozin, the former head of Roscosmos, is now the former head of Roscosmos. He was removed from his position. Uh, it is not yet clear where he's heading. There's some speculation that he will be, you know, in charge or whatever of the uh, Donbass region uh, from the Russian Federation. It's unclear exactly where it's heading yet, but likely up into the presidential administration. Uh, he's been very close to Vladimir Putin over the last couple of years, so chances are he's heading somewhere like that. Um, there's a lot of a lot of intricacies to this story. Um, Separately, the seed exchange agreement between NASA and Roscosmos has been officially signed, so they're now going to be flying integrated crews. Uh, there will always be a NASA or partner astronaut on a Soyuz flight, uh, and I say always, but that is honestly a little bit unclear to me, so we'll dig into that in a little bit. Uh, and there will be cosmonauts flying on commercial crew flights here, specifically SpaceX Crew 5 and 6. There's already a cosmonaut slated for each of those. So uh, these stories were announced on the same day. The connection between them seems coincidental, uh, but, you know, fun to speculate if Rogozin was holding up this agreement, or uh, I think somebody in the Discord, uh, the off-nominal Discord, uh, said that this is kind of the, the mods are asleep, so you can do whatever you want, you know, when the uh, heteros cosmos out, you can sign an agreement real quick before the new one is, is in. Uh, so that could have been what happened here. Um, but let's dig into these separately. So um, I want to read a little bit from a Space Policy Online article by Marsha Smith. Because uh, she had a great rundown of uh, what's going on here with Rogozin. In a very brief statement, the Kremlin announced that Rogozin had been, quote, dismissed as general director of the state space corporation Roscosmos, effective immediately. Russia's state news agency TASS later reported that Yuri Borisov has replaced him, adding that Rogozin's, Rogozin's, quote, resignation was not related to any complaints and that he would receive a new appointment. Until today, Borisov was Russia's deputy prime minister for the defense and aerospace sectors, a job he got in 2018 after Putin demoted Rogozin from that very position after reportedly falling out of favor. Uh, so this is Anthony again. That's a good background on, on exactly how this all went down. So Rogozin, back in the days that he was tweeting about how the Americans should use a trampoline to get the, to the ISS, was in charge of the defense and aerospace sector at large. Uh, and it was eventually demoted to just Roscosmos. Um, and I think that might help explain why in the last couple of years, Rogozin has been uh, such a performative uh, <laughs> a performative shit poster when it really comes down to it, right? He's been tweeting nonstop, um, very nationalistic sentiment kind of stuff, a lot about the war in Ukraine and um, a lot about attacking any perceived enemies in the world, right? Even if real or perceived, he's been tweeting nonstop about this stuff, um, really going to bat for the position of Vladimir Putin and everything else that, that Russia's been up to under his watch. And I think a lot of that could be seen as him trying to curry favor with Putin because he was on the outs since 2018, and Putin likes that performative display of patriotism, right? And of of rabble-rousing and... and you know, prodding NASA and, and poking, you know, Europe and poking the U.S. policy. Like, there's so many different angles. He's been threatening nukes. He threatened to drop the ISS on top of India or China if NASA doesn't like the way that Russia's running their affairs. Um, there's just been so many different things 
Um, and that's not even to dig back a little bit into the past and talk about the story where there was a hole in the Soyuz. And um, he was the one saying that there was a NASA astronaut who went crazy in space and drilled a hole. And, uh, and that's why, you know, they, they wanted um, to do that so that they can get back to Earth. All this stuff that was just total nonsense. And, um, you know, NASA was very slow to respond to all of those things. Um, recently has, you know, responded to this event on the ISS where they flew the Donbass and Luhansk flags. Uh, and NASA, after a couple of hours, I think it was, maybe even days, finally came out and said that they uh, denounced the use of the ISS for political statements like that. Um, so there's just been, you know, increasing tensions over the last couple of years. And I've obviously talked about it. If you've been listening to the show for a while, uh, even before all this started, I was saying that, you know, NASA should buy out Roscosmos from the ISS and and split ways. I've been extremely, uh, I guess, hawkish, you could say, on the state of the Russian space industry because um, it's been in shambles for years now. And it's been led by a man who just wants to keep ratcheting up tension because it's good for him personally to curry favor with Putin. So, you know, if that's that's all the context that went, went in around this and if he's raised his uh, status with Putin to to get to some other position, right? Because Rogozin's not like a space nerd in his DNA. He's not like somebody who was always into this and always working in the space industry. Um, so he, you know, cares about Roscosmos as much as it matters for himself personally. At least that's as it appears from the outside, because if you legitimately cared about Roscosmos, you wouldn't be doing some of the things that Rogozin's been doing the past several years. So if he successfully used this to raise his own personal status and move up into some higher position as he sees it, then I think that's, you know, exactly uh, exactly where or exactly what is going on here. Now, I liked um, Doug Messier of Parabolic Arc. He had a tweet uh, a couple of days ago uh, about what happened here with Yuri Borisov being put in Roscosmos instead of Rogozin. I'm just going to read this tweet because I think uh, it, it does help explain, you know, if we're seeing Rogozin's demotion in 2018 from uh, the Deputy Prime Minister of Defense and Aerospace down to Roscosmos, if that's a demotion, then Yuri Borisov is also getting demoted here. So we should think a little bit about what's going on there. So uh, Doug said, a little late to this, but my guess is Deputy Prime Minister Yuri Borisov is being shunted off the Roscosmos due to poor performance in Ukraine of the military industrial complex he oversaw. Putin periodically says nice things about space program, but he really doesn't seem to care. Uh, he goes on from there, but you know, I think that's a good uh, bit of insight as to you know, why this demotion is happening as well. So if Rogozin sees himself out to some higher level thing in, in uh, Russia and somebody that was in charge of the industry that has failed uh, to many people's expectations uh, in Ukraine is being put into Roscosmos. Now, is this good or bad, right? Because I think everyone was celebrating when, when Rogozin was finally freed of, of Roscosmos or, or I guess vice versa, right? When Roscosmos was freed of Rogozin. Um... Now, there's two parts to that. I don't really know that Yuri Borisov is going to be better in terms of uh, policy stances or the nationalistic sentiment that's been on the ISS or uh, the general positioning between Russia and the rest of the world. I don't really think that's going to get better. Um, it's a little bit like expecting, you know, a new senator from Alabama to all of a sudden decide they're not going to support SLS as much as the last person was. You know, you 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 became the senator of Alabama because you cared about certain things, and you are now the senator of Alabama who has to care about certain things. So I think there are there is certain baggage that comes with any particular 
um, political position, right, anywhere in the world, you you get there because of the moves that you've made to get there that often involve the same influences where the last person uh, was in the role, you know, the same influences they had as well. So I don't really think that side of things is going to be better. What I do think is, you know, I, I don't know Yuri Borisov's Twitter handle. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of rabble-rousing tweets from Yuri Borisov. Maybe they're out there. Maybe he will ramp up uh, the, the tweets around the U.S. and Russia's space, uh, space fight, I guess you would say. But I don't, I don't necessarily think so. So that would be a good thing. Because every time Rogozin went out, started posting all this stuff, and uh, started, you know, rabble-rousing, as I keep saying, every time that happened, that was an opportunity for people to start asking questions about the partnership on the ISS and about why NASA, ESA, Canada, JAXA, why they are all still working with somebody who is saying these kind of things. And it was something that I talked a lot about and, you know, people like myself in the space industry talked about. Actual journalists had that opportunity to ask questions of, of NASA and always ask NASA what the response was to, you know, Rogozin threatening nuclear war or threatening the deorbit of the ISS. It got headlines everywhere. It, it broke out of the space industry, right? It wasn't just Jeff Faust at Space News who had to ask NASA that kind of stuff. It was people from the Today Show and CBS Mornings or whatever, right? All of the the premier gen pop uh, journalism that's out there, it it got into those circles and people started talking about, oh, you know, Russia's threatening to deorbit the ISS. People that hadn't thought about that in ever, maybe, or talking about it all of a sudden. So that certainly ramped up the tension and made it a lot harder for the people that work at NASA and the people that work at Roscosmos, not the political appointees, but the actual people that are trying to fly the space station it made it a lot harder for them to do their job because they were dragged into the limelight all the time. If if this is not the case with Borisov, right? If it's if it's not as much um, public, uh, not as much public display of this tension, that's better for NASA. It's better for Roscosmos. It's better for the ISS. I think, you know, my personal opinion is we should still be rid of Russia as quickly as possible on the ISS. Uh, I think there should be a whole team at NASA that is working you know, day and night to figure out what it is that we would need to do if Russia closed the hatch between the segments. You know, what? where does that leave us? I think that should be a primary uh, role of at least a couple of people in the space station program because it's just prudent like this. You know, we're, in, we're sitting here in 2022. We want to fly the ISS to 2030. Can we do this for eight years? Uh, it's hard to say eight years is survivable on the trajectory that we're on. But as you know, I'm, I'm pessimistic about that. But I do think that should still be something that we are working on, regardless of what's going on in you know, reality. I think that's a plan that we should have on the back burner, just in case, because uh, it just seems prudent. But if there is less public tension, if there are less opportunities for people to ask questions of this partnership, if there are less times that this partnership is in the headlines in, you know, the the big mainstream news, that is more survivable over the long haul. And I think it's something that the people of Roscosmos, the people of NASA, ESA, uh, Canadian Space Agency, JAXA, you know, it's better for everyone at that level. So that is an improvement, if that is the case. We will see. I'm I'm willing to give Borisov a chance to start shitposting on Twitter. Um, But, you know, right off the bat, that is a much better situation for NASA, even if Borisov 
believes all the same things that Rogozin did, and even more stridently in some cases, then I still think it's an improvement overall if the, the public side is tamped down a little bit. All right, I want to talk about this seat exchange agreement between uh, NASA and Roscosmos. But before I do that, I want to say thank you to all of you out there supporting Main Engine Cutoff over at mainenginecutoff.com slash support. There are 846 of you supporting the show every single month. I'm so thankful for all of you who support the show because uh, this is entirely listener supported. Uh, as you might remember, I quit my job a couple of months back to do more of this and that is a huge, huge uh, influence in it, right? All these people that are supporting, it, it makes it a huge uh, jump that I can make and totally makes a difference. So I thank you all so much for that support. And this episode is produced by 41 executive producers. Thanks to Simon, Lauren, Chris, Pat, Matt, George, Ryan, Donald, Lee, Chris, Warren, Bob, Russell, Moritz, Joel, Jan, David, Eunice, Rob, Tim Dodd, the Everett Astronaut, Frank, Julian and Lars from Agile Space, Matt, the Astrogators at SEE, Chris, Aegis Trade Law, Fred, Haymonth, Dawn Aerospace, Andrew, Harrison, Benjamin, and seven anonymous executive producers. Thank you all so much for making this episode possible. Uh, you can put this on your LinkedIn, say that you were the executive producer of Miko. I'll totally back you up on it. It's a 100% legitimate thing. So uh, do that, flaunt it, because I'm super appreciative of it. Uh, and if you want to help join that crew, head over to mainenginecutoff.com support and join up there at any level. If you are at the $3 a month or more level, you get access to Miko Headlines, which is a show I do every single week, uh, run through all the stories of the week, the ones that don't make it onto the main show, the, some of the ones that do, give you my thoughts on everything, keep you up to date on all the launches that are happening. Uh, it's a great way to stay up on all the space news that's happening out there. Uh, let me do the work for you and help support the show. Get more of me in your ears if that's the kind of thing that you like, which if you're listening to this, you probably do. So uh, head over there and do that. And I am super thankful once again. All right, so this seat exchange agreement that NASA and Roscosmos have officially agreed to has been in the works for a really long time. Um, you know, so going back, right, we had the shuttle program for a long time. When the shuttle ended, uh, the Roscosmos flights were the only way to the ISS. So um, NASA and all the partner agencies, right, I keep saying NASA and the partner agencies. Anytime I say NASA in reference to the ISS, it probably just means NASA, European Space Agency, Canadian Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency, uh, and any other partners that have a piece of the action here. Um, we were paying exorbitant amounts of money for those seats on Soyuz, right? We would buy for like, it started around $60 million. It ended up around $90 million per seat to fly to the ISS. Commercial crew was coming online. And um, when that was envisioned, uh, once it was operational, a thing that NASA and Roscosmos had talked about for a long time was trading crew members Without trading money, right? We're not we're not paying them. They're not paying us. We would trade a seat on each of these flights so that a member of the crew for each side of the space station, right? Because there's the U.S. orbital segment and the Russian orbital segment. They are two different orbital segments attached in the middle. Uh, the cosmonauts work on one side. NASA and the partner agencies work on the other side. Um, but the idea here was that a member of the crew for each segment could fly on the other segment's spacecraft so that if there was an issue with any given spacecraft, both sides of the space station could still be uh, operated, right? There would be a, piece, a crew member on board to take care of that segment of the space station. So if Soyuz has an issue, Dragon's still flying, they can still get uh, cosmonauts up to the Russian orbital segment, vice versa, right? If, if there's commercial crew issues, which honestly was, I think, where the impetus came for this was NASA knowing that, yeah, you know, this is a new thing. There's probably going to be an issue here or there. There's going to be long groundings of spacecraft as we're investigating issues or, you know, checking things off. 
uh, or, you know, in this case, development delays where Dragon was online a couple of years later than we wanted and Starliner many years later than we wanted. Um, so I think originally it started out as a way for NASA to protect uh, their capability to get to the ISS, but still promise some flights to Roscosmos on the back end. Um, so that's the general motivation behind this. It had been talked about for a, li- a while, um, but there was resistance, and I think a lot of people put this at the feet of Dmitry Rogozin. There was resistance to signing this agreement because, uh, you know, us not paying that amount of money for Soyuz seats anymore was a big hit to the funding of the Russian space program. If you looked at their annual budgets, um, a shockingly large percentage of that is what we were paying for Soyuz flights uh, over the tenure that we were paying for Soyuz flights. So uh, commercial crew coming online and taking away that funding, that income, it was a big hit to the Russian space program. So there were certain things going on internally that, that put some sand in the gears here and made this agreement much harder to sign than I think a lot of people thought it would be. Um, NASA's even behind schedule on what they wanted to be to start crew flights with cosmonauts on board as soon as they hoped to. But, you know, a month or so over the deadline here, they finally did sign it. So the agreement here covers four upcoming missions to the ISS. I'm unsure exactly if this agreement extends beyond that and we just haven't figured out the manifest yet, or if this is only for these four flights. And at that point, we'll reassess. Uh, We'll talk about the future stuff in a second. So uh, the the basic agreement covers uh, two NASA astronauts on board the next two Soyuz missions. So Soyuz MS-22, which is scheduled to launch in September, I think September 21st, and Soyuz MS-23 in next spring. There will be NASA astronauts on board that alongside two cosmonauts on each flight. And then uh, starting in September, uh, cosmonaut Anna Kinkina, Kikina, I don't know exactly how to pronounce her name. I probably should look that up. Uh, she'll be flying on Crew 5 alongside NASA astronauts Nicole Mann, Josh Kasada, Japanese astronaut Koichi Wakata. They're going to be taken off in September on a Dragon, so she'll be joining the crew there. And then a cosmonaut will also be on board Crew 6 that'll fly next spring. So this covers us basically, if you figure these are both six-month flights, or these are all are six-month flights, uh, That those flights next spring cover us until fall 2023. Now, if the agreement extends beyond that, I assume it would be. I assume we wouldn't have to rework it at that point. But um, by the end of that agreement, right, Starliner should be online as well. So NASA wanting two ways to get to the space station, ideally, they would have three once Starliner is operational. Maybe in a world where Starliner is operational, Dragon's operational, this becomes less important from the NASA side of things, and the next agreement looks different. Who knows where we'll be at that point, right? Starliner's next flight is supposed to have people on board. It looks like at the end of this year, uh, right now, operational sometime next year. You know, maybe that maybe that fall flight next year, 2023, is the first operational Starliner mission. So things could be different by that time, um, and we'll see exactly how much this agreement covers. Now, one thing that I've been thinking about as I've been kicking this around my head that hadn't really occurred to me before, and this might just be all of the context that we have now with where Russians, Russia's space agency is at and space industry is at, where commercial crew is at, just changed my thinking on this a little bit. But, you know, as I said, it, it this was always something that was in NASA's interest to sign because they wanted to assure that they could get to the space station if and when we had problems with commercial crew. Now, the stance of the ISS program is that 
their crew is necessary to fly the ISS, and crew is necessary on both halves of the ISS to keep the ISS flying, and both halves of the ISS are required to keep the ISS flying. So if you're in a world where the Russian industry is in serious trouble, which it has been for several years, right? There's, I mean, rampant problems in the industry with like people going unpaid, not to mention the reliability problems that there have been of Russian hardware and software over the last several years. Um, and we can just recap real quick. The Zvezda module on the ISS is leaking right now, and we don't really know where or why. And they keep this one hatch closed all the time to limit the leaking to just the one part of the hatch where it is. Um, but that's indicative of a bigger problem internally for a very old module. Uh, there were all those Soyuz issues that happened a couple years back. So there was that hole drilled in the Soyuz that I mentioned um, that somebody plugged with something very temporary that eventually uh, popped out and there was a leak on board the space station. Around the same time, there was that in-flight abort where one of the boosters on the Soyuz rocket was forced in uh, and when they went to separate, create had an issue and they had to have this in-flight abort uh, and not actually get to space. And that was definitely an incident that if that kind of thing happened here in the U.S., we would be grounded for much longer than they were uh, over on the Soyuz program. Uh, but that was a major issue. And, uh, you know, there, there's other things that happen. Like every time that, uh, not every time, but most times that there's a vehicle coming in to dock at the ISS on the Russian side, automated docking goes a little haywire and they come in manually. That's happened a lot. Um, so there's this series of problems in the Russian space industry. There's all this reporting about how the uh, industry is is failing even beyond those things. And I started realizing that if NASA's official stance is that they always want a cosmonaut on board the space station to take care of that half of the space station that's required for its operation, we're at an inflection point where this agreement is almost defensive in nature for NASA, where they might just see, keep saying, yeah, we're just going to fly a cosmonaut on board a commercial crew flight, you know, as long as as things remain as they are right now to ensure that cosmonauts are on the other half of the space station because we're not super confident in the Russian space industry. Now, I'm not saying I know that this is a thinking internally, but I'm realizing that we are at the inflection point in the industry where that thinking is going to be more prominent than the thinking of NASA is protecting itself in case its own vehicles have issues. Because um, like I said, once Starliner's flying, we've got Dragon and Starliner that can fly to the space station. Um, the chances that both are having issues at the same time, it's not small, right? That's definitely a thing that could happen. Um, but the frequency of flights to the ISS being every six months, it, it does limit the exposure there if you do have these two providers. And that's why they wanted two providers in the first place. They wanted that competitive nature on the development side of things and the, the budgeting side of things. Um, but they also wanted to have that redundancy when they're in operations. So when we're in that world, the risk is less, and uh, the, the highest risk to the ISS then becomes a failing Russian space industry not able to keep cosmonauts on the station in the way that they need to to maintain the ISS. And, you know, it's totally plausible that NASA could be in this defensive position to say, you know, this agreement is beneficial to us, not because of our astronauts flying on Soyuz, but because of the cosmonauts flying on our vehicles. Now, for the NASA, ESA, Canadian astronauts that have to go fly on Soyuz, that kind of sucks. You know, I've definitely had jobs where I was the one stuck on a Spirit Airlines flight, and I feel like that's a little bit how it feels to get sent over uh, and fly on a Soyuz. Um, but, you know, they're astronauts. They can deal with it. 
one other bit of this though that is concerning is is um it's not only been tension between you know the U.S. and Russia in terms of space. The tensions between Kazakhstan and Russia have been rising since the war in Ukraine, right? The Kazakhstan, uh, even before that, Russia sent troops to quell an uprising in Kazakhstan because Kazakhstan is very important to Russia. You know, um, they lease that land at Baikonur Cosmodrome to Russia. So that's where their primary spaceport is, is in Kazakhstan. Uh, there's They're a huge oil producer. They're important strategically for Russia, geographically. And there's, you know, there's a lot of ties there. But when the Ukrainian invasion happened, uh, Kazakhstan did not come to the support of Russia. And they were criticizing them publicly. And since then, the tensions have been rising. There's been disputes over oil pipelines and and flights. And there's been an outspoken Kazakhstan in the face of, of pressure from Russia. And that's a huge risk, you know. That's a huge risk for Russia because Baikonur is the way that they get to the ISS. And, you know, is it a pretty extreme scenario in which they no longer have access to Baikonur Cosmodrome? Yeah, that would be a pretty extreme scenario. Is it completely implausible? Definitely not, With given what, where we're at in the world. Definitely not implausible. So again, if you're NASA and you want to be a little defensive about uh, of keeping cosmonauts on the space station, and you see not only the space industry in Russia having these reliability problems, but then tensions rising between the home of their spaceport and themselves, you know, it's not the worst idea in the world to, you know, keep this kind of defensive option open if, uh, if you're worried about the collision of all those things. And certainly is something that needs to be considered from all angles here. Uh, but once again, I will restate my firm, uh, <laughs> my firm position that somebody within the ISS program in NASA and the partner agencies needs to be working on a uh, what is our plan if everything falls out between us and Russia more so than it already has, and we have to figure out how to make the ISS go on with hatches closed uh, or with you know worse the Russian orbital segment detached from the U.S. orbital segment. Um, we need to be working on some sort of backup plan just in case because. Eight years is a really long time with how things are going today. Um, so we'll see. Maybe the Borisov era of Roscosmos will uh, quell the tensions a little bit, but that might be a bit too hopeful for my liking. So we will see where this all goes. But uh, thanks for listening. As always, if you've got any questions or thoughts, which I'm sure there will be many of after this show, hit me up on email, anthony at managingcutoff.com or on Twitter at wehavemiko. Uh, thanks again to everyone who supports over at managingcutoff.com support. And until next time, thanks again for listening. I will talk to you soon.